Welcome to Barn Blog, where our aim is to give you the best in analysis and philosophy, political economy, history, art, culture, and geopolitics from a left-wing and socialist-friendly perspective. We aim to bring you different perspectives from different walks of life and to have you educate yourself what to do with what you learn here. We do not aim to give you prefabricated and easy answers. Abandon all hope, ye who subscribe here, for you will learn, and it will be your responsibility what you do. And with that, let's begin today's episode. Welcome to Varm Blog. Today I'm here with Parker McQueenie on the coordinating committee for the Marxist Unity Slate over at the DSA and also in the executive committee for uh, the DSA and River Valley, which is River in Western Valley. Mass. In Western Massachusetts. Thank you, Parker. All right. Parker, you've been on uh, one of my shows many, many moons ago. Um, Back uh, when I was still doing Symptomatic Redness for Zero Books early on. So that was probably about three years ago. Nice to have you back. Originally, this was proposed as a panel. Um, I decided not to do it as a panel, but it'll be a reoccurring series. And um, uh, you came on to argue about uh, working within the DSA to change it. I am not here to debate you. I want people to know that. But this will be a slightly more not antagonistic but interrogative series of questions and i think what people need to understand for the future is hopefully we hear this when people if people come in a couple of months i'll give them the context for why we decided to talk about this and then what's happened actually in the interim between when we agreed to do this and last week so I said something snarky on Twitter, as many things go, about the Bowman affair, and I have maintained my stance of staying outside of the DSA because the Nationals' commitment to the Democrats has only intensified, actually, despite some other issues. I don't think that actually is reflective of what I've seen from informal polls out of the DSA for the DSA's actual membership, though. In fact, I would say that, that the membership's actually moving in the opposite direction. But the Jamal Bowman affair, and for those of you who don't know, that had to do with uh, Jamal Bowman's support of funding for basically um, Israeli aid against the one of the few platforms the, the DSA is very clear on, which is uh, the BDS platform. Um, that was voted in popularly was really divisive amongst membership of the DSA. Now, as a side note, ultimately, I'm not sure that I think the Bowman affair is actually all that important, but it did illustrate that the planks of the DSA were not a program that they could even hold, even reliably hold the MPC to. So we sat out down and I, I, you know, I continue my agnostic stance on the DSA, but very critical. In the foregoing month, what we've seen is the MPC's own report saying that they have lost about one fifth of their membership. You know, now it, it is unclear because of how they count this when this. Uh, decline started. The um, lapsed category is only like 7,000 people, uh, but the expired category is about 12,000 people. Together, that is about 2,100. That's a fifth of the DSA's membership as far as the membership has counted at the convention um, in November. I believe it was, yes, in November. The interesting thing is, while it's very hard to get the exact months down, and even the reports I've read from the NPC is rather vague, it looks like the great majority of those people left after the Bowman affair. Um, because 
The expired membership category, I think, depending on when they take the count, and they did say there's still some oversight issues with certain chapters. Uh, it can be like a few months before you show up on that, but you can also show up in a month. So it's hard to know what's actually prompting the exodus. Is it just, you know, the general malaise? Is it the same kind of thing that, you know, the recent Jacobin magazine cover has been about? So that's that's the framing. That's how we got here. I also wanted to point out that since you were coming in arguing for the Marxist unity slate, that you actually are in many ways, even though Marxist unity slate had some successes uh, at the convention, your larger platform is not the platform of the MPC right now in general. Would that be fair to say? Yeah. So let me just uh, go back for a second here. Go ahead. Um, Sorry that you froze a couple times during during that thing. I don't know if it's my internet connection, but if I interrupt you at any point, that's fine. Apologies in advance. We formed we formed for the convention around seven or eight people. We had a slate of three proposals, um, one of which uh, did make it to the convention floor, and it was debated, um, but it, it it failed, which we expected it to do. We were only seven people, and also um, our platform amendment. Uh, did not make it to the floor. So none of those things became policy. Um, but at the mm-hmm. same time, I personally was a member of the committee that uh, wrote the subcommittee that wrote the platform. Uh, and we had a lot of people, you know, there was a big, in, in, in that platform subcommittee, there was a process for members to submit criticism of the first draft, to submit suggestions and stuff like that. And then um, various discussions on the platform at, pre-convention. So Mm -hmm. I would say that we did have some political influence on the platform. Although I guess what we were arguing for is that coming up with some kind of programmatic document that does describe the actual politics of DSA members is the most important step forward at the moment. Mm -hmm. Um, Because not qualifying that means that we can continue our, that we basically continue our opportunistic uh, strategic stance towards uh, you know, electoral politics, labor politics, all sort, all sorts of things. So the idea was that we have a platform, and then once we have this platform that actually says where our actual politics are, uh, you know, stuff like anti-NATO, just basic positions that are not necessarily, you know, allowed to be had in polite society. Right. Once we have those set out in a in an official document, it's going to create some kind of contradiction between you know the actual electoral strategy we've been pursuing and what our actual political goals are. I think the Bowman affair situation uh, kind of proved that correct in that um, people were using the platform as justification for criticism of Bowman. Um, So I guess I would just say our goals going forward are to put forward a kind of better qualitative rather than a kind of quantitative, you know, as many wins as we can get, but rather um, put forward candidates who actually are willing to stand for our program and kind of practice politics in the way that Marxism classically uh, did, which was as mainly an agitational and a propagandistic tool to raise the, you know, raise the expectations of the working class um, rather than form backroom, you know, horse trading uh, to get on committees to become, you know, an appendage of the Democratic Party sort of thing. So, right. So you and I actually on this probably agree a lot actually on what the actual flaws of the current MPC are. And for those of you who don't know the MPC, the MPC is basically the uh, elected coordinating committee at the national level. There's also the director who is unelected, but definitely sees professional staff. One of the issues that you have increasingly in the DSA is there's volunteer electorate and professional staff and they operate in parallel paths, although technically uh, Maria Svart, the director, is um, serves at the behest of the MPC. But I, ha- since she's become the director, I have no MPC has said much about her performance. Nor do I know that it's actually bad. I mean, you know, it's just uh, it's just a thing to notice that she's a pretty constant. For the past five or six years, uh, there, towards the national level. Yeah, go ahead. 
There has been some controversy over this, actually. So I believe she became the national director in 2010. And obviously, DSA was a qualitatively different. Um, yeah, was that like the four the to five thousand? Yeah, excuse me. Was that like the four to five thousand yeah, member level? It was a glorified mailing list of the old timers who were members at, at Harrington's point. Um, as far mm-hmm. as the current NPC goes, I would I would say that you know it's not just a problem of who was elected to the NPC, but the fact that you know DSA is very decentralized in a manner of speaking, although it's being fixed in some ways. So it's not necessarily a problem just at the top, but kind of organizationally the whole way through. Anyway, mm-hmm. kind of, that was kind of aside the point of the whole well, national a- director situation. But comrades from Bread and Roses caucus have been kind of peeved at politically for the last couple of years because she hasn't hired a labor director. And I don't know the kind of backroom politics behind this, but uh, they've been wanting a labor staffer for a long time, so they put a resolution at a uh, convention to elect the national director. Um, it lost because, in my opinion, because they didn't campaign on the political problems with the with the national director. Um, they just mm-hmm. made it a case of kind of vague democracy. So yeah, the NPC does have the power to fire the director, but I guess you know they didn't want to. They thought it would be a bad look or something. But I don't know. I, I don't know what the specific details about the issues, but there are real political issues. I think people should be unafraid to, you know, raise that specter because no one should, no one should be in the national director of a, you know, quasi mass socialist organization as a c- career life choice. You know, that's something you do for a couple of years and then move on. Right, and she's been there now for a, a decade, and from before the the big explosion in two thousand and. Uh, 15. A couple of things that I want to clarify for our listeners who may not be as familiar with the structure of the DSA. The DSA's constitution was slightly reformed and in convention in 2019. However, most of the org structure goes all the way back to Harrington and 84, I believe, is when it split from the U.S. Social Democrats or whatever. And one of the interesting things about that is the DSA is highly 70, federated. Seventy two was yeah was well seventy two is a split from yeah so it Sorry. doesn't really yeah okay the, the and eighty three is the merger with NAM yeah eighty three is when it becomes what we think of as a DSA right so and when that happens it goes up to five thousand members in the light of Reagan's reelection and then basically plateaus there for thirty years which is you know it. And I've known about the DSA since like 2005 or six. But if you'd have told me in 2005 that it would have been the largest socialist organization in America, I would have laughed at you. So I guess my prediction rate is not always stellar. But the DSA has a highly federated system, but it's federated in a weird way. It's basically municipal, national. Um, There's the 80-20 do split. There isn't regional coordinating committees which I know like the defunct collective power caucus was really big on this. And in the lieu of the regional coordinating committees, the caucus systems kind of been around, but I think almost all the caucuses are in the last, what, six or seven years, right? All the major ones. There's none that go back to the pre Bernie times. I believe so. So there was a thing called um, left caucus from 2015, which was before the, the big blow up. Um, and I think that bread and roses can trace its organizational roots to there, or at least, um, maybe the Jacobin people may be more accurately. Like I, I'm pretty sure Bhaskar Sunkara was involved in, um, left caucus before DSA blew up. Um, right. but pretty much it would be accurate to say that, mo- that pretty much all the caucuses are part of the new DSA, um, North star, which is kind of the f- fringe right wing, uh, you know, I hate to say this, but the boomer uh, mm-hmm. kind of ex new communist movement people um, who wrote the letter um, chastising DSA for not supporting Biden more. Um, that group is mostly people who have been involved in the left for five decades. Um, some of them have been DSA members for decades, but I don't know. I don't think they were organizationally 
uh, together in a caucus until 2016 or something. So we have coalitions of, of, of regional orgs and you have the caucuses. I remember left caucus. I also remember refoundation. Uh, a bunch of the, <laughs> a bunch of the early caucuses have uh, splintered into many, many things. But what, what has been clear to me is the caucuses originally didn't play that huge of a role in DSA culture. Um, and in, in the lieu of regional development, I mean, and also like there are other, I think the caucus system would have happened anyway, but they become really, really important as a way to organize beyond the local chapters because there isn't really an intermediary organization that's really active outside of the convention. Um, and the convention is every two years, right? Now, yep. Funding for the DSA is interesting. It's 80-20. 80% goes to the national, 20% goes to local. There have been resolutions, I think resolution 30 and 33, that actually increase funding for locals through matching funds and some other stuff. Uh, so the 80-20 is not perfect. For those of you who want to know what most of the DSA's money goes to, I've actually looked at, looked over it. Other than the large number of consultants the DSA hires for things that are not entirely clear, most of the money collected by the DSA and its six point nine uh nine million dollar budget million billion billion maybe billion million, definitely. million yeah million uh is actually spent on the operations of the DSA and when you also consider the average cost of living uh and the fact that DSA only does union shop um employees are a large part of their cost and that's not that's justifiable also the NPC is now paid but not a lot. Um, it's not a lot of money at all. It's basically a stipend for their time. Uh, one that is low enough that one would not want to become an, uh, a career NPC or from their money. So I say all that because th it's easy to mischaracterize that. And I want people to understand that structure. The bylaws of the DSA are strange in that sometimes local chapters can get out of them, which is nutty to me. So with chapter rights, its own bylaws, it submits them to the DSA, and sometimes they can exempt themselves from national bylaws, which is weird. Um, the, the most the most common example of that is the Democratic Centralist ban, which is from way back. It's from like the early 80s or maybe even back all the way to 72 from, you know, the SPA split is where its origins supposedly come. Because it's also, ironically, the Dimsent ban was also until recently in the SPUSA too. So it goes really far back. So it's a actually a pre-DSA thing. Huh. So uh, someone says the only the steering committee is paid, which is five of the 16 NPCs. So it's a, it's a very small, it's not, it's not a huge portion and it's not enough that I think anyone would want to do it professionally, but the director is professional. Um, there's a professional staff there's lots of and and again, this is just from the public records of the of the NPC meeting. There's lots of weird debates about like volunteer staff versus professional staff, and like professional staff being mad. The volunteer staff tells them what to do, and I'm just like, okay. Um, the other thing that we need to be clear on is I don't know for all chapters, but I do know out here in Salt Lake that paper members uh, outnumber regular attending members like five to six to one. So whenever we had, uh, well, I say we, I'm not a member, but whenever I would go to even a large DSA gathering, which would be like a hundred people here in SLC, there was probably 600 people on roll uh, that could go to that event. Um, so these are all the structural things. So you kind of get a feel for the landscape of what we're talking about here. What the NPC spends money on beyond operational costs does seem to be mostly lobbying and like grants to DSA candidates. And this is where I'm going to ask Parker to comment a little bit more in a minute. But the grants are super low. It's like $7,000 or so. Like and if you're in a, a very low key, uncontested city council seat, yeah, that'll help you out. It's a serious amount of money. Um, if you're in a like in, in SLC in my in my district, we had like in this you know it's not a huge city. Um, we had a contested city council seat, and all of a sudden, hundreds of thousands of dollars are running into the city council seat. So I, I point that out because it's just enough of amount of money to cost the DSA a fair amount of money off of its operational budget, but not enough where I think it could sway 
someone to take a stronger stance against Democratic Party politics because it's not going to it's not going to intervene beyond other donors. That's my that's my point. And for the money, the electoral stuff is incredibly expensive. The DSA is not misleading you on that. So I wanted to say all that in fairness to the DSA. Okay. Why do you think the DSA should still be the organization that we focus on on the left, given everything that I just said, and that now it's hemorrhaging members? Right. Yeah, um, that's a good question. And I definitely agree with a lot of your criticisms put forward. I guess what I would say and what you know, most of the other members of the organizing committee of Marxist Unity Group would say is that there's kind of this you know, ultra-left truism or kind of a workerist truism that says, screw the left, the left sucks. You have to go to where the workers are. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think that attitude kind of isolates everyone and means you don't necessarily have a clear programmatic uh, politics to bring to people. So you can spend all your life on the factory floor as a cell of five militant communists or whatever, but you're going to have a hard time merging, you know, the working class militancy with the actual socialist program. So I think, you know, the is- follow the Iskra strategy, right? Lenin's strategy of the early, you know, 20th century, which is, you know, intervene in the debates going on in the socialist press, in the socialist left, fight the opportunism that exists there, put it on the right programmatic path, and you, you gather your troops in one place have an effective battle strategy, and then go into battle, right? So I think, you know, it's true that DSA has been hemorrhaging people. I'm actually surprised it's so few because there are um, big chapters that haven't been able to reach their quota at general meetings. I think quota, it's probably, like you said, bylaws are different for every chapter, but I think it's generally like something like 20% of membership, which means that the executive committees have to do like outreach to make sure enough people are coming to general meetings to reach quota so that they can actually get business work done. Yes. I can actually vote. Exactly. I would personally favor a model that had tighter membership. Like I would, I would personally favor something like only have people who are willing to pay monthly dues, blah, blah, blah. But I think the vast majority of DSA members want it there to be kind of a low barrier to access. Mm -hmm. And and there are benefits and drawbacks of that. I mean, I think, you know, when, when you do have an exciting campaign going on and there's, you know, someone really great running for a seat somewhere, it might be easy to get some of the less active members to come out for a canvas or something. But another thing I want to point out is that just over the pandemic, I think a lot of people, got burned out of going to his constant zoom meetings, um, zoom for school, zoom for a DSA meeting. It's, it's, it kind of sucks, honestly. And personally, I kind of burned out on zoom meetings over the pandemic and wasn't attending my chapter stuff. Although I was doing the stuff with the, um, platform committee on the national level, I was not very active in my chapter, but with this whole Bowman affair thing, with the whole debates going on around, um, Bowman's vote for the iron dome funding, I think, um, a lot of chapters were kind of reinvigorated by having, you know, actual political debate and discussion, which is mm-hmm. something that the kind of people on the right who were opposing expulsion for Bowman said the opposite would happen. Oh, it's going to, you know, it's focusing us on inward pains. But, you know, in my chapter, particularly, we had, we had a resolution come to our general meeting and it was our first general meeting back in person um, off Zoom. And we had something like 75 people come, which was a lot more than we had over the last year. Um, And I think people were really excited to debate it. The resolution lost by one vote, but I wasn't really disappointed with that because I think our job, like our struggle for an actual effective Marxist strategy in the U.S. left Mm -hmm. is an uphill battle. And I I don't think it's something we're going to win right away. But, you know, the idea is to have a kind of strategy of attrition to convince as many people on the left to have a principled approach, you know, I think eventually it's going to come to a head, but until then you try to win as many people over to a principled approach as you can. So I think, you know, where else else other than DSA is activity happening? Well, I guess the question becomes where does activity continue to happen? Uh, And I say this because the one thing I will say is the DSA doesn't, 
really have a clear national strategy campaign other than two Democratic Party parking points. And uh, yeah, no, I um, think there's, um, but yeah, I was just going to say, I think there's a bit of combined and uneven development going on with DSA. Like um, the New York chapter is like way bigger proportionally than any other DSA chapter. And they have, they actually have a bench of electeds in the New York State Assembly uh, and the State Senate, actually. And they're really the only place where DSA, at least on a state level, has like a disciplined fraction within a legislature, which is kind of the classical Marxist approach. But at the same time, you know, the Socialist Caucus is unofficial, you know, so there's no actually mechanical structures that tie uh, those electeds to the party platform, to the state leadership or whatever. Like you said, there isn't even a state leadership in New York. And also, they're members of the Democratic Caucus. Now, I would argue that, you know, fine, you want, it's easier to get elected on it or basically impossible to get to not get elected outside of the major ballot line or whatever. But I think the real disciplinary mechanisms of the major capitalist parties are in the caucus. So you could get elected on the Democratic ballot line and refuse to join the caucus and only caucus with other socialists. I think that would be a plausible way to go forward. Um, at least until, you know, they make laws to disallow that from happening. Uh, that's not what DSA is currently doing, but that's what I think Marxist unity would, would argue for. One thing I would bring up is that the Democratic Party's local apparatus in most states outside of New York and California is actually quite weak, but it's also quite easy for the Democratic National to cut off fundings because of that. And we've seen that when DSAs take over small states, Democratic caucus. It's happened once. Yeah, it happened in Nevada. Um, And I think the DSA members in Nevada were... So there's been some kind of strategy debate in DSA around these questions of, oh, do we support, quote-unquote, the dirty break? um, Or do we support, quote-unquote... Yeah, the party surrogate the strategy. In were the people claiming, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, the people in Nevada were the ones uh, following the p- party surrogate strategy, which says, "Oh, the Democratic Party isn't a real party, so we can just uh, put our members in and you know use the Democratic Party form, but put, have the socialist content um, without ever having to break and form a Labor Party, which I think is the majority of dirty break people want a bourgeois Labor Party rather than a socialist party, even." And nationally, there was a lot of criticism of the people in Nevada for that because because of what you just said. Um, and I think the dirty break people were actually pretty opposed to taking over um, state Democratic parties. And then you have uh, the former CPN was in favor of party surrogate. And I think also um, Socialist Majority Caucus was um, in favor of party surrogate. So they were pushing for the uh, state takeover of Democratic parties. In the sense that American parties have a history of being empty voter-based machines and have no function like the traditional socialist parties of Europe did, I see some of the party surrogate point, but in general... That strategy seems to deny the power of the Democratic National Convention, um, which seems easy to lose all your funding. Exactly. And and the people who are arguing for party surrogate, actually, you know, I would say that our position is to go for the party surrogate model, at least on the short term, but actually do it, which means hold people accountable to the platform, actually have disciplinary mechanisms like the German Social Democrats did in the late 19th century, like the Bolsheviks did in the Tsarist Duma. But no one was really arguing for that. Um, So I think that's, you know, that's the argument we're trying to put forward. Um, Of course, we do think that we need to eventually have our own legal shell as well. And if that means, you know, I think like I said earlier, people are addicted to winning as much as possible rather than winning as well as possible, right? So I think we would argue for better but fewer. The common 
thing you're going to get thrown back at you is how is this not going to end up like the Green Party or the current attempt at the People's Party or whatever? I mean, there is a history of third parties. And before the mid-1990s, they were actually threats. But the state-level party conventions in almost all the states rewrote the laws, got them through state legislature. And while it's not impossible to get third-party candidates in a local or state legislature or even on the ballot, it's very hard for them to effectively access normal democratic um, levers of power. And that, and that was bipartisan after the Ross Perot campaign. I find it, I mean, it is a bind, right? Because one of the things you would argue for the dirty break would be to have a, a state by state level program plank with an immediate demand to parliamentarize, you know, um, parties in a way where states actually would have fair party representation for their public and workers' parties would be fairly represented. But I haven't seen anybody in the DSA like take a state a state level plank on what kind of reforms it would be asking for. All I get is some stuff about the PRO Act or repealing Taft-Hartley or something, which is important, but not enough. Right. Well, yeah, that's, you know, that's an example of how the U.S. federal system really fucks with (laughs) strategy and makes it more difficult and complicated. I think, you know, Seth Ackerman's piece from what was it, 2016 or early 2017 about the ballot and the break, I think it's called, details all these legal hurdles. Um, And it kind of was the genesis of the whole talk about the dirty break and the party surrogate. But yeah, I think, you know, going back to an earlier point about state level structures, I think one thing that would help and is actually starting to happen is forming these, like California DSA just formed, I believe, but, but crucially also forming like policy platforms to fight for political democratization so that we actually can have, you know, a viable uh, socialist party come around. But at the same time, like I'm saying, like I was saying earlier, you know, I'm, I'm fine with doing party surrogate for now, as long as we actually do party discipline, we reject all discipline of the Democratic Party even if we're using their legal ballot line, you know, and and while we do that fight for both state level and national, you know, political reforms, multi-member districts, uh, ranked choice voting, stuff like that, um, which is all in the national DSA platform. Um, Here in Massachusetts, we endorsed the ranked choice voting uh, ballot measure last year, or maybe it was 2020. Um, It failed. I can't remember by how much. But yeah, I would say, you know, and and I think right now, a lot of the political reform stuff that DSA officially endorses is kind of just talk. You know, people don't see it as important because they think, oh, we can just keep kind of tailing progressive Democrats for now. So I would say that, you know, go back and read Lenin on what is to be done and and two tactics of, of social democracy and the democratic revolution. And just you get a sense of how important political agitation and like actual politics over the actual political part of the program over the economic part of the program was like how important that was to Lenin and and Bolshevism. Hmm. The one thing I would say in response to that though, is neither political determination nor economic determination actually led to the Bolshevik revolution. It was like specifically being the strongest faction in a state of high entropy due to Czarist mistakes and Lenin's rightful embrace of the Simmerwald left and increasing the, you know, pointing out how bad the contradictions were for the working class in the war and supporting defeatism for all imperial powers. 
There's nothing like that on the table yeah. in the, the American context. Right, right. We're in the context of we need to be party building. And that's why I look so much to the party building era of Lenin's writing, you know, like the early 1900s, because, you know, only a party that has roots in the working class, that has principled programmatic politics, can take advantage of an opportunity when one inevitably arises because of, you know, all the various crises that capitalism engenders, right? Economic crises, climate crises, political crises, whatever. Um, you know, those are, those are inevitable. I don't think socialism is inevitable, uh, but crisis is, and it's either socialism or barbarism, right? Like the quote at the beginning of your, um, introduction states. And, um, I think only a, only a principled Marxist party can take advantage of a revolutionary situation, but without a revolution, without a revolutionary situation, we need we need to be focusing on building a revolutionary party. Okay. One thing I would ask is, does the Dirty Blake strategy with the Democrats also make a certain logic within the DSA itself? When would you want to? I mean, I guess a, pl- a platform would do it, actually, would actually force what would amount to a, probably a split. Right. I mean, so here's the thing about the, the dirty break. The official you know, explanation of the dirty break is that it's actually more um, influenced by the history of the UK Labour Party mm-hmm. than it is by, you know, an actual Marxist party. And I think the idea, it comes from kind of a certain certain brand of Trotskyism that says what Marxists can do is become a faction within a bourgeois labor party, right? Which is that um, not only the uh, British Trotskyists that came out of the, you know, Ted Grant, um, CWI slash IMT tradition, but um, even in the U.S., the, uh, the Draper Shatman tradition was deep and the I, I think the swp tradition too was yeah both the cliffite and the draper tradition held um that idea that you needed to form a workers party and a socialist tendency within it which the Trotskyist tendency would liquidate itself into <laughs> yeah exactly but we, we have to remember this was also when the cpusa was a mass party we called it merger formula right <laughs> anyway, the point is that you know we see we see this idea of forming a, a labor party that can um, replace repeal and replace the Democratic Party as one of the major two parties is kind of a setting setting ourselves up for failure. I think our view is that we need to form you know a programmatically communist party, a, a, a mass party that has a clear vision for the working class taking power in society, which means you know having a, a, a minimum a minimum platform that calls for you know political revolution. Um, obviously, a bourgeois labor party is going not going to do that. They're going to say we want to, you know, rule capitalism within the constitutional framework, maybe in a more equitable way. But I would say, you know, why why not focus on the you know ten percent of Americans who have a positive reaction to the word communism? You know, why not try to get representation for that ten percent and programmatically, you know, have a programmatically clear party. You know, maybe a, a minority mass party, but um, if if a labor party does form, you know, if there are you know sections of the working class that do ever see it necessary to form a, a bourgeois labor party, we could affiliate with them in, in in the classic you know united front tactic. But I think you know you're already liquidating politically if you if you aim for building a, a labor party, you know, a major party to the next government rather than a maybe maybe smaller but more effectively political communist party i will say this though but it became pretty clear that the dsa strategy was none of those things including the party surrogate or the ackerman plan which has seemed to fall out of favor in the last year it was the Semi-post-facto explanation of Adolf Reed that we needed a Bernie movement 
to have a political movement, to cause a workers' movement, to have a political movement, to have social... I mean, the number of steps involved in this and the fact that it was literally a top-down, failure, bottom-up, some kind of weird twist, figure-eight, mobile strip strategy. And that was the actual strategy that they embarked on. There was no real attempt to even build the party surrogacy beside these, you know, certain small state parties. Like you, I think about the amount of energy that was spent on debates around the squad, which was a way, for example, if I wanted to, I could make a ton of money as a streamer doing that shit, but it was totally missing the broader point of what kind of representation could you have? How could you hold these people accountable when you can't even create a program for yourself for as a grounds for leftist unity in the first place? You have no functional definition of what counts as left. And that's right. a problem. Yeah, I think, and I think in a, in a big way, it was a relationship of convenience with the, with the squad, right? I mean, you know, we have our stated strategy and then AOC wins this huge upset primary victory. Oh, look, she's a member of DSA and DSA was involved in the campaign. How many tens, like 15,000 people sign up for DSA right after that, right? It's a major media victory. So obviously you don't want to say, well, you know what? We were actually just a small part of the AOC coalition. You know, really the main thing behind her is justice Democrats um, and, and whatever else there is, you know, I, I'm, I don't really know what, I, I'm yeah. not in New York, so I, I, I don't know. Justice Democrats, local stuff. The Ted Kennedy campaign, since he was a former staffer. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and then what happens is people think of these people as DSA candidates um, when they're really not, because DSA d didn't have the capacity to win a congressional campaign on a national level. And so, but there's, you know, there's a positive uh, media spin for DSA to have that kind of opacity there um to have people think that oh yeah this is dsa join dsa you get a bunch of new people um but in reality they're not accountable to our platform they're not accountable to our leadership at all you know and i think that's becoming more and more clear to dsa members and we're not going to have these um easy mass recruitment uh pr victories that we've had in the past um, and even though that might mean fewer people signing up, that might mean we not are actually aren't actually going to get to 100,000 real members anytime soon. Um, I do think that it puts us in a positive direction to actually realize that a we need to be putting forward the type of people who are accountable to our politics, and b that you know we can actually do that, and we have done that on the local and state level. Um, and we need to make that policy. Um, so yeah, I think, I think it's a positive, I think we're moving in a positive direction actually, even though, um, you know, it's true what Trotsky said, right. That to overestimate your numbers and your strength is actually a weakness. Um, and I think it's the last couple of years has shown in what respects that has been a weakness for us. Well, the jump from 50 to like 90,000 should have worried us when it happened during COVID and there was nothing for those people to do. I mean, yeah, that, and that's, that too. Yeah. that's a big thing right now is I'm like, there might be some stuff for locals to do maybe, but it seems right now I was reading the NPC's call for a big national recommitment campaign, but they have none of their own agenda items to put forward for that campaign. And what I predict you kind of hinted at is correct that because it's harder to get quorum and because it's actually kind of hard to fall off the rolls of DSA that unless something really changes in the next six months, I think we'll see that number double. But again, the high point of DSA action was not the high point of DSA membership. You would actually just be going back to the like 2019, 2018 level. Right. 
Yeah. I, I generally think, you know, a lot of DSA members are, you know, swayed by the numbers. Like if we're losing, if we're losing members, it, it's always a bad thing. Um, and I think that's true to an extent because, you know, you don't want people burnt out. You want to have your network of contacts, you know, people who are sympathetic and who are maybe willing to show up for something. But at the same time, I think, you know, practically, if you're going to be a cadre organization that actually does real work in the world, you need to um, vet people a little bit. And I don't know, you know, I haven't thought about this much. I don't know if I would support a kind of two-tier membership structure or what. But, you know, numbers numbers isn't everything. And when you grow really fast in a short period of time, it just has positives and negatives. Um, you know, you need to educate people. Um, and I think in the last five years, you know, pe people's political education has really matured a lot. Um, but at the same time, you know, you have new members coming in and you don't have really any consistent program for, you know, teaching them about socialism. So, yeah, I think, you know, even if quantitatively DSA isn't growing, I think that doesn't mean it can't qualitatively. And I think once we get our qualitative issues sorted out, I think that would put us on good footing to grow quantitatively. All right. We have one last question and then I'll let you go. Thank you for your time, Parker. Um, this is from the listener back country. What would be the bridge too far for continued involvement in the DSA? At what point sh should the, or would the DSA left need to consider bailing? Right. Um, well, I think, you know, the quote unquote DSA left has never really cohered into a real, thing. There were lots and lots of different groups that consider themselves on DSA left and groups outside of DSA that consider themselves two DSAs left, um, but who disagree on 500,000 things. Um, that being said, you know, I think if there were another socialist organization that came up that had the potential that DSA does, that had the number of chapters it had, um, it would be worth uh, orienting towards that. I mean, uh, part of Cosmonaut Magazine, we oriented towards uh, Marxist Center Group, even though they were much smaller because we found the idea of uniting uh, groups on the far left um, attractive. And, and again, I would say that, you know, DSA, one of the good things about it is it does have these kind of democratic internal structures in the sense that you can form a faction and you can argue for your politics um, I think there have been some chapters where there are, you know, concerns about, you know, bureaucratic maneuvering and stuff like that. But I would say the vast majority of chapters, that's not true. Um, on the national level, that's not true. And as long as it's the, you know, largest place of the socialist left in the U.S. and, and B, that you have the ability to agitate for principled politics, I would say that that's probably a good good bet that that's the best place to be, at least on the political level. Um, you know, there may be a trade union that's worth uh, engaging with on a, on a practical level, like um, UE, United Electric, um, the ILWU, the, the nurses union. I think those are the most radical trade unions in the U.S. And, our and, and you know, DSA does have really good relationships with, with those un unions from, from what I know, uh, especially the nurses and UE. Yeah, but if another theoretical situation, if DSA did get its cadre members elect, elected to Congress or something, and they ended up uh, violating principles in a big way, um, and the leadership got behind it and all the membership got behind it, I would say not necessarily to leave, but to make a kind of make a big stink about it until you get kicked out. So it really depends on the situation, but... You know, so like just think about the Labor Party in, in the UK right now. I think it was um, the there's a group called Labor Against the Witch Hunt and Labor in Exile Network that just voted to merge and now are operating totally outside the Labor Party. The Labor Party has totally eviscerated its left, but you know I think it was the wrong move to uh, now for Labor Against the Witch Hunt to operate outside of it because now there's no one left to kind of speak up against the witch hunt. 
um, of, you know, if you, if you don't know, it was groups like Socialist Appeal, um, basically anyone who defended people who were kicked out for a supposed anti-Semitism, which is really just uh, defending Palestine. Yeah, I don't know. I would just say that in general, if you have a mass organization of the left, it makes sense to argue your position until you get kicked out. The last question I have, um, this is my own, and it came up as you were discussing this. Unfortunately, the DSA left, even if its members would actually show up in two sections of the Pew poll, the outsider left and the progressive left. For people who don't know what I'm talking about, there's a recent Pew poll typology of people's gradients of left and right. I tried to take it. I don't know that it's super helpful. But the one thing I will say is the progressives are both the smallest and most unpopular faction of ID of the ideological spectrum in the United States, regardless of racial, I mean, uh, racial identity or this, that, and the other. How would the DSA differentiate themselves from that when their national level candidates seem like representatives of said faction? Okay, sorry, I um I haven't seen this pew poll, and I actually you froze again a little bit while you were discussing that. Can can you just kind of repeat the question? Sure, I can repeat it. I said that they, there was a pew poll that figured out both the popularity and the relative size of like ten factums on a spectrum, the left to right. There were two categories in where Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren supporters showed up which is already telling you how a problem you're going to have with this poll. But um, it was the outsider left, which is relatively popular in about 10% of the population. And then there's the progressive left, which is about 6% of the population, extremely unpopular. Nobody seems to like them, but the representatives that the DSA has aligned themselves with are strongly seen as representatives of the progressive left by the general public. Now I know we need to figure out the class character and all this, and these pew polls don't help with that, but it does seem like the progressives were able to benefit and actually, so was the mainstream Democratic Party was able to benefit of the seeming activity of, of the DSA and has now also kind of squashed its electoral hopes entirely while the DSA is still throwing money at them. Honestly, they really are. I mean, it's something to the turn of one hundred thousand dollars going to um, the Green New Deal and the Pro Act campaigns. So someone's asking, who's associated with the outsider left? That's a problem is because the outsider left was defined by everybody who identified as leftist, including some socialists who did not clearly fit into some other major Democratic Party faction. So there's some people in there who are actually pretty moderate, and then there's socialists in it. <laughs> uh, it it's, it's a mess. Yeah, um, I guess. OK, so let me try to take a stab at this. Um, I would say that rather than orienting towards, you know, whatever category, you know, a pupil might talk about, we should think about it as, you know, starting with our own independent Marxist principles, right? And and for me, that means, you know, our platform, even though I have a lot of criticisms of the platform, um, it's at least a, an official document that states what our political positions are. And that's obviously, we don't have a majority for all those, like they're, they would sound crazy to a lot of people. I think there was... um there was some race somewhere where some, you know, democratic party politician caught with of, or actually read the first draft of the platform before the whole thing was published. And they were like, they want full nuclear disarmament. Like these guys are crazy. And they actually, they, that actually got it, got its way into the media, which I was thrilled about. But yeah, the, the independent Marxist position, even if people are unconscious Marxists, I think are, is a definitely a minority position in the country. But I would argue that you, we need to consolidate around whatever that minority is. And yeah, it's true that um, Marxists do support, you know, what would be called progressive things. 
Um, we support black liberation. We support women, women's emancipation, blah, blah, blah. And we, we shouldn't shy away from those things because um, they're, they're seen as, you know, cutting into bread and butter demands. Um, but I think there's a way to kind of frame discussion around, you know, oppression and stuff like that um, as part of a universalist uh, program of emancipation, which is what I think Marxism is about. You know, there's also, you know, obviously the capitalist class has co-opted a lot of that language easily. But I would just say that we have to think about the issue, these issues in a Marxist framework, which I don't think the whole intersectionality framework does. I think that I think that intersectionality kind of makes class kind of one of the spokes on the wheel of oppression or whatever. And, and you don't and you don't think about things in their historical context in, in, in the sense that, OK, racialization was an invention of mainly the later 17th century, not 1619, but the 1670s and 1680s, as uh, Noel Ignatiev and, and Ted Allen have, have written about. Um, and why was racialization a thing? Well, it was for labor discipline to keep the co continued accumulation of capital through the super exploitation of slaves. So, you know, obviously we're getting into theor theoretical grounds and not, you know, political messaging here. But when you take the Marxist approach, I think you can uh, have a consistent approach towards human liberation, um, put that in a framework that's towards universal emancipation. You know, this is I'm getting kind of tangential to your original question now. But, yeah, I do think the best bet is to put out an actual Marxist framework and consolidate everyone who can be consolidated around that um, and work from there to win a majority of support for the socialist program. Uh, I think that's kind of an unpopular view within DSA because obviously it's hard to get elected on a, on a minority, you know, minority position. But I think, you know, if we're smart strategically and tactically, we can make wins. Uh, and, you know, I've been talking a lot about politics tonight, but you know, it's not just on the political level, it's on the shop floor. It's on, you know, there are all sorts of other work DSA members are doing. I think most DSA members would say that political and trade union work is the most important work we're doing. Um, but again, that's a, tac that's a tactical question. So yeah, I'll leave it there for that one. There's a lot of stuff that came up that I could talk about, but I think I'm not going to. The only thing I would say, backtracking a bit, is that... I do get somewhat frustrated with the bourgeois labor party talk coming out of the Trotskyist and Trotsky adjacent factions of the DSA because they seem to ignore the history of workers parties where they come out of long coalitions of unions and internationals and that in America, that's literally illegal. So that <laughs> pathway of building that party is not there. Um, and I think that's something people should understand that Taft Hartley was actually aimed at making sure there was no U.S. Labor Party. <laughs> the Democrats wanted to make sure labor would remain a captive um, demographic and the GOP of Eisenhower, which is a very distant GOP than now, but wanted to make sure there were no dirty socialists in the country and that together, you know, functioned that way. And, and the CPUSA at the time had no reason to oppose it because they maintained the popular front till like, I don't know, last year. So it's uh, something I think people should know about these discussions. The only thing I would say about the United Front strategy as spelled out by Mac McNair and as historically held by the Second International is that it does assume a parliamentary and not congressional legislative representation and so it would almost take a constitutional amendment um, to make it viable in the U.S. Right. Um, yeah, the idea that you don't join a, a governing coalition, right, which is totally geared towards parliamentary politics, 
Um, I think in the U.S. that's more difficult because if you're elected on the Democratic Party, like while well, a president was elected, you have no control over whether or not um, you're the governing party or not. But I, I would say it's it's your action. Um, so if you're, I, th- I think it's possible to build a pure opposition party uh, in the U.S. that doesn't enter coalition, which means don't take any positions in the administration. You know, you can vote on bills that are that are you know positive towards enacting parts of our platform, um, but you know, don't horse trade, don't compromise on your principles, and act as a pure in- independent opposition. You know, obviously, it's a little bit more complicated when talking, and, and I think the biggest problem is it's harder to translate to people what it means. Um, you know because of the difference between the presidential system and a parliamentary system. Yeah. I think that's a, a huge kind of issue that, that hasn't been really discussed is not only is it for a parliamentary system and not our congressional system, but it's also for non-federated system. And in fact, you know, the arguments against federation go all the way back to the first international, but we have inherited a federated system in the United States. I think, I mean, I, I say this because I think people should be looking at these historical social positions, but also looking at the differences in law and constitutional regimes um, for how you would integrate that. And I know people would say also that like historically labor was illegal and the high point of American labor was illegal here too. And that's all true, but your party has to eventually be legalized to run. And so you got to have a path for that. Anyway, thank you, Parker. Um, There'll be more discussions with different groups in the future on this. Uh, I will say you you have made your position pretty clear. I would also say that I think these discussions are important to have, but I will state for my audience before they think that I have endorsed anything that I still wouldn't join the DSA. So people should make their own decisions on this. And this is actually a, a position as a socialist that I actually care more about the platform of what people think the content of socialism is than where they think that struggle should be. However, um, that is going to require somebody to file into some national level organizations and international level organizations at some point. And so that does seem to be, something we have to realistically talk about and taking a totally cynical answer towards even having the discussion is a non-starter because that's, I mean, it's been easy to do. The sectarian left has been doing that since the fifties. And we should admit that the sectarian left in America has been historically been some of the most useless organizations in the history of mankind. So I think we have to look at that. I also think there's some people point out the the second international failed. I think that's I think that's a fair point. You, what you have to, to discern there, and I'm not in the capacity to do it in a, in five minutes at the end of a stream today. If you think it failed because of its strategy, or if you think it failed because it didn't stick to its strategy, because the evidence as I've read it could support either interpretation of the history because there was deviations from the strategy. I mean, the whole, the war bonds thing is an indication that there was deviations of the strategy in which the Russian and oddly the American socialist parties took the right side. That's a weird history. It's like the U S actually took the right side on that debate, but um, nobody else. Most of them were Germans. Yeah, fair. <laughs> um, but uh, it's 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 something, and I think we have to look at. But I also think we we do have to look at new st- strategies, and we're dealing with the legality of the situation in the United States, and what kind of collection of of tactics and strategies you're going to use. So all that's a bigger question I can answer on a stream. I'm going to let you go. Thank everybody for coming out. Thanks for having me.
Yeah, it was, it was fun. I will uh, send this one to my editor to clean up the audio, and it'll be out as a podcast for people to listen to probably in about three weeks. Great. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for supporting VarnBlog. If you would like more, you can find our stream on YouTube under my name, C. Derek Varn. You can also find us on Patreon, where you can subscribe for early audio access, additional shows, unexpurged audios, Q&As with me on video, and other perks, such as access to our archives, etc. There are three levels of support. One level even gets you on Patreon shows. Occasionally here you will hear shows done with other creators. I hope you enjoy them. We'd like to thank our producer, Paul Channel Strip, and Bitter Lake and Jason Miles for making our intro and exit music. And thank you for all you do. If you can't support us financially, you can support us by leaving a review on iTunes or your pod catcher of choice. Have a great evening. Bye.